If you hear well with your ears, then close your eyes. Pat a cake, baker's man, baker cake as fast you can. Could you make that sound? Pat a cake, baker's man, baker cake as fast you can. Again? Pat a cake, baker's man, baker cake as fast you can. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Listen to this. Yes. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why Third Coast collects and curates the best audio stories available worldwide. On the air, the internet, we will go back in time, back to our childhoods if we have to, just to bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. What's this one sound like? The baker is baking sweet biscuits so small, his oven will take 700 in all. Buy some for tea, buy some for tea, the biggest for me. That's really playing with sounds, isn't it? When you fall in love as a kid, you stay in love forever. Remember curling up in your feety pajamas on someone's lap, your wet hair freshly washed, sitting and reading The Cat in the Hat? Or Circus McGurkis, Goodnight Moon, or Curious George? How about watching The Wizard of Oz and covering your eyes when the flying monkeys scream through the sky and sneaking a peek through your fingers because you got to see it, even though it's going to give you bad dreams for days. Knowing every word on every page, every note of every song, these are the routines that bring us so much joy and comfort as a child, and equally as much joy as an adult when you get to repeat the ritual. Today on ReSound, some of our favorite childhood icons, from the man who gave us Thing 1 and Thing 2, to Dorothy, the Tin Man, and Toto 2. And let's not forget about a quiet old lady whispering hush. And what about this one? Stay with us. In the continuous avalanche of childhood flotsam and jetsam, toys, books, games, stuffed animals, that get slowly whittled down as kids outgrow them, there are a few things that I could never, ever give away. My son's favorite childhood sleeping companion, Flopsy, for instance, homemade Mother's Day cards, and of course, without question, all the dog-eared, ragged-spined Dr. Seuss books. That would be unforgivable. Even a quick glance at the cover invokes a sentimental coup. Oh, I loved that book. And because we know his work, we think we know him, Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss. But as you're about to hear, there's more to Dr. Seuss than star-bellied sneetches and Cindy Lou Who. I don't think my book is going to change society, but I'm naive enough to believe that society will be changed by examination of ideas through books and the press, and that information can prove to be greater than the dissemination of stupidity. You wonder where Dr. Seuss would be today. (laughs) Well, the first line? Um, um, okay, so, um... Dr. Seuss and the Butter Battles. And the Butter Battles. The author that we are going to talk about today is Dr. Seuss. You guys all know Dr. Seuss? It's interesting. If you go to America, most schools, most children have heard of an author called Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss books make me smile. My favorite part of them is how they 
Rhyme. He isn't really called Dr. Zeus, his name is Theodore Geisel. And all those funny creatures he makes up, like the Who. His books are, well, they're wild, crazy books. I think his greatest quote is that adults are just obsolete children and hell with them. That explains a lot of his success in a funny way. Well, first of all, the, the most attractive thing about Zeus is a certain kind of craziness. The buildings are fantastic. The people's limbs are longer and more sinewy than any real human being is. And, of course, they're not real human beings. So there's a lot of instability going on. And then anarchy takes place. I mean, take the cat in the hat as the prime example. He wrecks the joint in American terms. He completely wrecks it and then miraculously puts it all back together again. But we, the reader, knows it was once a wreck. Now, that's destabilizes something or other in our minds. Yes, it does all go back to where we started. That's the whole point about children's books. But in a way, that's a bit of a fib. You've had a journey and you are changed by the journey. And the journey you're changed by, certainly in a lot of Dr. Seuss's books, are that the world became untenable. The Smeeches. All the rest of that day on those wild screaming beaches, the fix it up chappy kept fixing up sneeches. Off again, on again, in again, out again, through the machines they race round and about again. Changing their stars every minute or two, they kept paying money, they kept running through, until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one, or which one was what one, or what one was who. There was this huge, great big pile of creatures are all sitting on a little creature or the fact that there's a world within a world within a world and even that's allowed to exist. And you didn't even know that this little speck of dust inside a speck of dust could exist. So there is a constant destabilizing effect. Now, if it all then sorts itself out at the end, we say, oh, well, you know, we got back to normal. But on the way, you've, um, you've been stirred up. I'm Michael Rosen and I write children's books. Do you know 23 Daves, about a woman who has 23 sons and calls all of them Dave and realises when the 23rd is born and she names him that she's given herself rather more trouble than she might have looked for? Not a very political poem, but hilarious nonetheless. I'm Giles Andre. I'm a children's author and cartoonist. I created Purple Ronnie and Edward Monckton, the kind of quasi-philosophical cartoon characters I came across Dr. Seuss as a very young child. I have an identical twin brother, and both my parents used to read the Dr. Seuss stories to us when we were tiny. And I guess it started with The Cat in the Hat and Green Eggs and Ham, both of which I found rather odd, actually, and not particularly engaging. I found The Cat in the Hat very frightening, I think, because it's quite a sort of anarchic story for a young child. And I think as a young child, I yearned for for order more than chaos, perhaps unlike most young children. But I found it terrifying, really. Was Ted subversive? I'm not even sure I know what that means. Um, I think if he was subversive, it was in a kind of a schoolboyish way. People sometimes accused him of being um, a bit of a hermit, a bit of a loner. Well, it wasn't true at all. He was a lovely guy. He liked people, but I think he was inherently rather shy. I remember once he telling me about how he was at some, oh, it was an affair in a department store or something, a book signing, something like that. And he found himself feeling more and more marginalized until he was kind of standing on the edge of the room. And um, 
and there was a door and he and he went through the door and he found that he was in the the, the back room where all the uh, the ladies shoes were stored in their shoe boxes and so he spent the entire party with a magic marker changing all the sizes and prices on the shoe boxes <laughs> this is, you know, is that subversive question okay what, if I that? did not tell you that this book was by Dr. Seuss how would you know that it was by Dr. Seuss even if I didn't tell you yeah because it says it um if I didn't if you didn't see the author's name and I didn't tell you who it was by pretend his name's not even on there by the illustrations okay really good he makes up a lot of like animals and things my name is Michael Frith, and um, I had the great and singular privilege of working with Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss, for uh, a number of years. I was uh, working at Random House as, a, as an editor and art director. He certainly wasn't someone who um, took a party line. He certainly wasn't someone who, you know, got up on a soapbox and said, uh, you know, this is the way I want you to vote. I think his work and his life were much more pointed to making the difference at the the basic philosophical level. You know, sometimes people would accuse him of being a bit of a preacher, and my response was always, yeah, he's one of the great preachers and teachers who ever lived. And the lessons that he is teaching and the, the message that he is preaching are very, very important lessons for all of us. Mister, he said with a sawdusty sneeze, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs, he was very upset as he shouted and puffed, what's that thing you've made out of my truffle a tuft? The Lorax. The Lorax already asked him to stop, so why do you think he's doing that? He doesn't care about the trees, he just wants the money, even though the guy lives lives inside the tree. How would that make you feel? It would make me feel I was really mad and angry at them, and I would feel like I wanted to just kind of stand up to them. We've established in the last couple of hundred years or so the idea that somehow or other children are apolitical, that there's some sort of strange garden in which they're frolicking about, and they're separate. There's this high wall, and politics goes on outside. But, I mean, any child, the moment they walk into school, are, of course, immediately confronted with the politics of education, with all sorts of issues to do with race and equality, and there is no wall. And, in a way, Geisel was very upfront about acknowledging that and he was saying that these big moral issues about how do you treat somebody who other people are saying is less important than you is it all right to completely despoil the environment will it come back and bite you you know he's looking at all these things i think they do fall into different categories and it's the fables that i admire the most and very often they are in a sense quite sort of traditional fables they have his sort of trademark anarchy but they also have a strong, a very strong sense of right and wrong and actually fundamentally of the sort of absurdities of a lot of adult behaviour. In particular, I think, um, pomp, arrogance, self-protection. Bureaucrats and fascists in very high important places could be very threatening, but in less important places they were objects of humor to him. And ridicule is an important weapon, obviously. He didn't just say, I'm going to 
I hate this, so I'll write something satiric about it. He reveled in doing so. And he, I think more than anything, anything that was pretentious, he just loved to make fun of. My name is Christopher Cerf. I knew Ted Geisel as a child. I had the good fortune of being the son of Bennett Cerf, who was uh, the co-founder of Random House and Ted Geisel's publisher. And uh, I think arguably of all of uh, the authors that Random House ever published, Ted delighted my dad the most. Uh, certainly he thought that he was the great genius of the people that Random House published, which included Faulkner and, and O'Hara and O'Neill and many others. So that was a very high compliment indeed. I think he was politically engaged as far as big issues all along. And that's one of the reasons I think his books are so powerful, because they really do have morals. Yertle the Turtle, the king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. Yertle the Turtle. I'm ruler, said Yertle, of all that I see. But I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. With this stone for a throne, I look down on my pond, but I cannot look down on the places beyond the throne that I sit on. is too, too low down. It ought to be higher he said with a frown. If I could sit high, how much greater I'd be. What a king. I'd be ruler of all I could see. The story is extraordinary. It's a kind of socialist tract, in a way, about a turtle who decides that he wants to be king of everything, and he, he builds a tower that becomes higher and higher. He builds it of turtles, and he summons more and more and more turtles, and all of them tread up this tower with poor little Mac, the sort of um, pedantry turtle right at the bottom, who complains in a, in a very sort of pleasant way to begin with, but he gets more and more disturbed and suffers more and more pain with more and more turtles climbing up on his head, up on his back, until his, his shell obviously gets pretty creaky. Then again from below in the great heavy stack came a groan from that plain little turtle named Mac. Your Majesty, please, I don't like to complain, but down here below, we're feeling great pain. I know up on top you're seeing great sights, but down at the bottom, we too should have rights. We turtles can't stand it. Our shells will all crack. Besides, we need food. We're starving, groaned Mac. And at one point he just decides he's had enough, and he burps, and his burp shook the throne of the king. And, of course, the whole stack of thousands of turtles comes tumbling down. Here and the birds and the bees, the king of a house and a cow and a mule. Well, that was the end of the Turtle King's rule, for Yertle, the king of all Salamasond, fell off his high throne and fell plunk in the pond. And today the great Yertle, that marvellous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. And the turtles, of course, all the turtles are free as turtles and maybe all creatures should be. Wonderful, of course, for children that a burp is what brings the king down. It is very Seussian indeed. What's remarkable about him is he can get across these uh, really quite rich philosophical notions for children in the language that they understand and in a sort of metre that is so bouncy and lively and, and really very light-hearted. And I think that's why he can really get under the skin of children and help them to understand philosophies and doctrines that I think perhaps you could only get across through metaphor, actually. I mean, not only is it anarchistic in the sense that, you know, it's a burp can pull the whole thing down, but at the same time there is a, a philosophy of anarchism 
political anarchism that we don't need kings to rule us. We can just get along and um, we can be free in the mud doing our stuff without having a, a ruler like Yertel over us. So there's no question, it's, it's a little testament of anarchism. Now Peter, Piper, pick peppers, but run right, run, humpty, dumpty, fell, down, that's his heart, time, jaggly, nimble, what, nimble, and he was quick, but jam, mass mud, faster, jacks, or jeans. Okay, so the, <laughs> I mean, of course, mostly I read the stories the way you would normally read the stories. It was definitely the sleep book where I first started rapping. There's nothing particularly significant about this. It was a product of parental exhaustion. So we're going to read this story. Horton here, who do you guys know this story? You're reading it for the 107th time. And so I just started noticing that it sounded particularly a lot like Run DMC. Well, and here's the who. The Wickersham brothers came shouting, what rot? This elephant's talking to who's who are not. There aren't any who's and they don't have a mayor and we're going to stop all this nonsense. So there. So Philip Nell, Seuss's biographer, whose work I dipped into when I first started thinking about this, somewhat legendarily said that both Seuss and rappers have used poetry as a medium of dissent. And of course that's true, although I would definitely give the rappers the edge and the medium of dissent. But I see what he's driving at, and, and that's obviously an area where I do think there's a lot of overlap between the Seuss impulse and the rap impulse. Seuss's element of dissent is more about you know, becoming yourself, being wild, and the rap descent is much more complicated because the people who rap are themselves downtrodden in a way that, you know, Seuss was not. My name is Aaron Redica. I run the research desk at the New York Times Magazine. Um, I wrote a blog post that was originally supposed to be about Dr. Seuss and rap and then became about Dr. Seuss rap and racism as I explored it further. Dr. Seuss goes to war. This is uh, quite like the world of Dr. Seuss. It's, it, it's the kids with the storybook, you know. It's obviously some sort of, uh, something similar to a grim fairy tale. I had no idea that he had done these cartoons during World War II. A woman reading to her two children, and she says, And the wolf chewed up the children and spit out their bones. But those were foreign children, and it really didn't matter. And once I saw them, I definitely did feel differently about Seuss. There's an edge to it, an edge of horror. In my hands, I've got a copy of Dr. Seuss Goes to War, which is a collection of editorial cartoons of Dr. Seuss's from World War II. I'm Dave Brown, and I'm the political cartoonist for The Independent. My name is uh, Richard Minear. used to be a professor at the University of Massachusetts. Maybe 15 years ago, a colleague and I taught a World War II course. One of the students got into the local newspaper during World War II and found some icons that Dr. Seuss had done. And he said, did you know Dr. Seuss was doing this stuff? And I didn't. So I decided I ought to check it out. And the result was the book, uh, Dr. Seuss Goes to War, which was the, the first time most people had any idea that Dr. Seuss had been a political cartoonist as well as a children's author. There's surprisingly quite a big crossover between the kids' books and the political cartoons. You know, there's a lot of the same style of figures there are you know, political figures transformed into animals which still have that sort of very characteristic Dr. Seuss look to them. 
In a way, without him possibly knowing, he was preparing the ground for the kind of unstable physical world that he created so often in his books. I'm looking at a cartoon at the moment from August 26, 1942. The caption says, Gee, it's all very exciting, but it doesn't kill Nazi rats. And then we have a, a very chaotic hellish-like picture of cats strangling each other. Probably in the picture there's about 30, possibly more cats. Physically, they're, they're doing impossible things. There's one cat I can see holding another one here, and the neck is uh, ludicrously long, and his tail's all wiggly and hanging down below, and there's eyeballs popping out, and there's noses crushing against them, and there's great kind of poof, kind of marks going on, lots of wiggly tails and cats flying through the air. He's got a cartoon of two faces in Mount Rushmore, and one is Hitler, and beside Hitler is his cartoon stereotype, Jap, mustache, buck teeth, uh, Coke bottle glasses, uh, slant eyes, and the caption is, don't let them carve those faces on our mountains. Uh, Hitler, on the one hand, is clearly a historical figure. His Japanese stereotype is uh, cut from whole cloth. It's not the emperor, it's not Tojo. The figures are all the same. They are small men. They all have the round pebble glasses, slitty eyes, of course, small moustache and and buck teeth. It's hard to figure out where it came from, although I sort of think it came from Gilbert and Sullivan, (laughs) which is maybe the only exposure Dr. Seuss had before the war to things Asian. It has the look of a lazy cartoon altogether, actually. The stereotype is lazy. By his standards, the drawing isn't particularly good. It looks rather hurried. Was his heart completely in it? I don't know. It's a cartoon for a particular time. Let me look here for just a minute. Uh, After the war, Dr. Seuss did comment on uh, his cartoons. This is in an interview from 1976. When I look at them now, they are full of many snap judgments that every political cartoonist has to make between the time he hears the news at 9 a.m. and sends his drawings to press at 5 p.m. The one thing I do like about them, however, is their honesty and their frantic fervor. I think I helped a little bit, not much but some, in stating the fact that we were in a war and we damned well better ought to do something about it. There's this wonderful... Susian parentheses at the end. Note well, to the younger generation, I'm not talking about Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia. I'm talking about a war that had to be fought, had underlined. If my philosophy irritates yours, please write me, care of Justin Hogfleet, the boy who stuck his finger in the hole in the dike, Foders Fleet, Holland, and then he gives a zip code, 09037. A lot of his books, I think, at the time were controversial, sometimes for reasons that look ridiculous in retrospect. I remember reviews of some of the beginner books in the early days saying that education is meant to be a discipline. If kids are just reading silly books in school, that's they won't learn to have discipline, uh, that we can't permit this. An interviewer once asked Dr. Seuss, I think a lot of your books are subversive. This is Seuss's response. I'm subversive as hell. I've always had a mistrust of adults. And one reason I dropped out of Oxford and the Sorbonne was that I thought they were taking life too damn seriously. Hilaire Belloc, whose writings I liked a lot, was a radical. 
Gulliver's Travels was subversive, and both Swift and Voltaire influenced me. The Cat in the Hat is a revolt against authority, but it's ameliorated by the fact that the cat cleans up everything at the end. It's revolutionary in that it goes as far as Kerensky and then stops. It doesn't go quite as far as Lenin. Interesting, this from Dr. Seuss late on in his life. I'm subversive as hell. I remember myself when I was in my 20s trying to defend Seuss in a rather angry panel discussion at the American Library Association. The idea that this would happen now it seems impossible because there's a national day where everybody in America reads the cat in the hat and everything. So to imagine there was a day where the librarians didn't think that this was worthy, it was like comic books to them. They shouldn't be allowed in libraries in some case. The Butter Battle Book. They thought up a great one. They certainly did. They thought up a gun called the Kickapoo Kid, which they loaded with powerful poo-a-doo powder with ants' eggs and bees' legs and dried-fried clam chowder. And they carefully trained a real smart dog named Daniel to serve as our country's first gun-toting spaniel. There were a lot of people who had major problems with the Butter Battle book. They felt that, you know, primarily because Ted was so well-known as a children's author, that um, he shouldn't be putting out a book that would give, potentially, give kids nightmares. I marched to the wall with great vim and great vigor, right up to Vanitch with my hand on the trigger. I'll have no more nonsense, I said with a frown from Zooks who eat bread with the butter side down. Vanitch looked quite sickly. He ran off quite quickly. I'm unhappy to say he came back the next day in a spiffy new suit with a big new machine, and he snarled as he said, looking frightfully mean, you may fling those hard rocks with your triple sling jigger, but I also now have my hand on a trigger. Oh, the Butter Battle Book is fascinating. It's a parody of the Cold War. Two villages side by side start out with one village buttering their bread on the top side and the other village buttering it on the bottom side. And they very quickly are at odds and they build a wall, the Berlin Wall, and they have missiles going back and forth. And finally one of them invents the big boy Boomeroo and the nuclear weapon. I'll blow you, he yelled, into pork and wee beans. I'll butter side up you to small smithereens. Grandpa, I shouted, be careful, oh gee, who's going to drop it? Will you or will he? Be patient, said Grandpa. We'll see. We will see. It's fascinating. The reaction to that one in particular was, who is this guy, Dr. Seuss? He's a children's author. He ought to stick to his children's books and leave the serious issues to the big boys. One of their biggest criticisms of the book was that it has in quotes, no ending, unquote, that it leaves things dangling and that it's a very dangerous and, and disruptive thing for a child to not have closure, particularly when the, uh, the subject is one that is so, so enormous. Most children's books resolve in some way or another. We can all think of one or two examples that don't. But here, there's something else going on. It's that thing that you find in folk tales sometimes. There's a traditional telling of stories in the Caribbean uh, where the storyteller gets to the end of a story where everyone has behaved badly and the storyteller says, Jack Mantora, me no choose none. And that means 
there's not one of these people who has behaved better than another and so on. So what Zeus has done there is hand it over to you and go, well, is this going to get madder and madder and madder? And, of course, he's writing from the point where no one knew. One of Ted's greatest (laughs) gifts, um, both personally and to the world, was that he never, ever underestimated his audience. He just assumed that the kids were absolutely as smart as or smarter than we were. They just hadn't lived as much and seen as much. And um, that if you presented them with difficult ideas and you presented those ideas in a way that they could understand, they would be right on top of it. Dr. Seuss died in 1991 at the age of 87. He'd been in failing health for a number of years. Weeks before his death, his hand-picked biographers asked him if, quote, after all the messages in his books, something remained unsaid. Dr. Seuss responded, let me think about that. I often do wonder about where Ted would be today if he were, you know, uh, sitting down at his desk and trying to think of um, what the next message should be. It is, in a way, uh, kind of odd to think of books that were about the uh, devastation and deforestation of the environment and uh, about nuclear standoff as seeming almost a product of a more innocent time. But uh, in a way, the world in which we now live does seem if possible, even darker, even stranger, and even less uh, open to rational thinking. Any message or slogan, question mark. Whenever things go a bit sour in a job I'm doing, I always tell myself, you can do better than this. The best slogan I can think of to leave with the USA would be, we can and we've got to do better than this. Striking at age 87, and he's still got enough feistiness and enough dismay at the way things were going in the United States to say, we can and we've got to do better than this. That's a nice legacy. Dr. Seuss and the Butter Batters was produced. Was produced by Eleanor McDowell. By Eleanor McDowell. No, Nora. Eleanor McDowell. Eleanor McDowell. Are you interviewing us? That was my question. It was a Falling Tree production. We're going to go on the radio. For BBC Radio 4. Delicate little wee folk, aren't they? This is Leonard Bernstein, and I'm going to tell you the story of Peter and the Wolf. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. One of the things that drew us to Dr. Seuss and the Butter Battles, aside from the subject matter, of course, was just how playful it is, how the music is jaunty and jazzy and not unlike a Dr. Seuss drawing. The story actually has a Seussian irreverence to it, and when form follows function, well, our ears are happy, and we want yours to be also. So let us know what you thought of Dr. Seuss and the Butter Battles, or anything else you hear on ReSound. Post it, tweet it, shout it, bleed it. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, lions and tigers and bears. Stay with us. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, some of our favorite childhood icons. 
Once we found the story about Dr. Seuss that you just heard, we started on a path searching for other stories from our childhood and ended up on a yellow brick road. Now, when I was young, the only way to see The Wizard of Oz was once a year when CBS aired it, and it was a huge event. We looked forward to it for weeks, and the whole family would gather together to watch. I vividly remember Danny Kaye introducing the film on a reproduction of the Oz set. Turns out, he only hosted the broadcast for three or four years, beginning in January of 1964. I just turned three then. But that is just how powerful these things can be. They become etched in your brain, and they stay with you forever. Now, of course, you can see it anytime you want to, but that has not diluted its power. It remains one of the most enduring stories of American childhood. Studio 360's series on American icons, hosted by Kurt Anderson, explored The Wizard of Oz as entertainment, cultural icon, and metaphor. I can't even hear one bar of that music without feeling a jolt of childhood delight and anxiety. And so even today, 40 years later, almost any random sample of that soundtrack transports me back to that universe of fantastic twisters and flying houses and munchkins and flying monkeys and witches and Dorothy and Oz. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I'm not alone in this reminiscence of things past. Almost everybody, I think, has their own set of intense, indelible Wizard of Oz moments. I was certainly drawn to the witch. The director, Neil LeBute, first saw the movie when he was growing up in Spokane, Washington. I realized the power of the close-up. And when she became, you know, larger than life, I can remember backing away toward the kitchen. Can I still have my dog? No! The novelist Salman Rushdie first watched the movie in a theater in Bombay when he was 10. Years later, he sat down with a videotape and watched it over and over and over again. I fully expected by the end of it to detest the film. Instead, I liked it much, much more because it showed me things, that process, which I had never seen before. Before the 1939 movie and the songs and the other movies and the Broadway musicals, Oz was conjured in a single book, adored by hordes of children in the early 1900s. The book was written by L. Frank Baum, who at the time was the editor of The Shop Window, a trade magazine about retail window displays. The 1900 edition of the original Wonderful Wizard of Oz, with drawings by the newspaper cartoonist W.W. Denslow, sold for a buck fifty and flew off the shelves at virtually Harry Potter speed. Baum went on to write 14 more Oz books over the next 20 years. Eric Malinsky has the story of the real man behind the curtain. Lyman Frank Baum failed at every career he tried. He couldn't make it as an actor. His newspaper flopped. He couldn't sell crockery. In the Depression of 1888, he opened a general store in South Dakota and sold gourmet chocolates and Japanese lanterns. Baum was literally a rainbow chaser. Michael Patrick Hearn has spent most of his life studying L. Frank Baum. He says Baum was a classic overachiever. Nothing could be done second rate. If he was going to open a store, it was going to be the best store. If he was going to sell axle grease, it would have to be the best axle grease. If he was going to sell chickens, they had to be purebred chickens. Baum had one clear talent, telling stories. 
The kids in the neighborhood would follow him around like he was the Pied Piper. He didn't think he could make a career out of it. And his mother-in-law spent her winters with the bombs. And she said, you better write these down, Frank. You're a fool not to. Matilda Jocelyn Gage may have convinced her son-in-law to write The Wizard of Oz. But her influence on Baum didn't stop there. She was a pioneer in the women's rights movement, partners with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, until they had a falling out. Gage has been largely forgotten by history, but you can see her radical feminist ideas all over Baum's work, especially with the character of Dorothy. She's thrown into the situation, and nothing's going to keep her from solving her problems. She even loses her temper, and that's why the Wicked Witch is destroyed, is because she loses her temper and throws a bucket of water on her. This is a pivotal moment in children's literature. It's the first time a child is allowed to lose its temper and not get punished for it. The books were popular, but Baum didn't really hit it big until he turned The Wizard of Oz into a Broadway musical in 1902. Baum had finally found success, but that didn't make his life any easier. He tried to end the Oz series after six books and move on to other stories, but they just didn't sell. So he decided to build a franchise out of the one thing he got right. Baum moved his family to Hollywood in 1909. The movie industry hadn't even started yet. Baum's Oz films were some of the first motion pictures made in Los Angeles and he cast unknown actors who would later become the very first movie stars, like Harold Lloyd, Oliver Hardy, and Hal Roach. What was interesting about the the films is that everyone had an original score, which was almost unheard of at this time. And this was like the first scoring of motion pictures. In California, it had an orchestra. In uh, New York, it had an orchestra. And then, I guess, in smaller towns, they would have people playing the piano. But it was not a success. Baum even tried to sell dolls of the new characters as part of the ad campaign for the upcoming books, musicals, and movies. He was doing everything Disney would try 10 years later. But Baum couldn't pull it off. Like Disney, Baum understood the future of entertainment. But his business sense hadn't improved since he tried selling Japanese lanterns to South Dakota miners. Baum's family remembers him as the eternal optimist, taking his failures in stride. But even they admit that his real home was in his imagination. Michael Patrick Hearn wonders if Oz played an even more important role for Baum. No one creates a secondary world like the land of Oz who's happy with the world as it is. I think there were a lot of things that Baum was not happy about his life and about America. And a lot of that gets into the Oz books. When The Wizard of Oz movie came out in 1939, Janine Basinger was a little girl growing up in the real Great Plains of South Dakota, not far from where L. Frank Baum had lived. Today, she is a professor at Wesleyan University and one of the top film scholars in the world. Basinger says that while Baum was extraordinary, growing up during the Depression on the prairies, she knew a lot of folks like him. Many people who didn't grow up on the prairie picture all of the people out there as these sort of sturdy people in work boots, you know, digging around in the earth and making things grow and saying, let's bring in them crops or something, you know. Or Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. Exactly. And the truth is that it was a world of strange eccentrics. And there's something about the geography of the place that opens the imagination to anything and everything. And there's something about the loneliness of the place and the wind and its isolation. 
Here is Frank Baum's own description of that landscape. When Dorothy stood in the doorway and looked around, she could see nothing but the great gray prairie on every side. Not a tree nor a house broke the broad sweep of flat country that reached to the edge of the sky in all directions. The sun had baked the plowed land into a gray mass with little cracks running through it. Even the grass was not green, for the sun had burned the tops of the long blades until they were the same gray color to be seen everywhere. In the first paragraph of The Wizard of Oz by Baum, he describes a very gray, dull scene. There was no color whatsoever. Ernie Harburg is the son of Yip Harburg, and Yip Harburg was the lyricist who, with composer Harold Arlen, created some of the most enduring popular music of all time, including the music for The Wizard of Oz. If you've ever stood out in the middle of Kansas or the Great Plains, it is a, you, you can see for miles the whole horizon and everything. And when those rainbows come out, you are just overwhelmed. And Yip, your father, came up with the idea of the rainbow. Yeah, oh yes, that's absolutely true. You can read through the Baum book, the word rainbow is never mentioned once. So Yip did bring the rainbow into the Wizard of Oz with all of its incredible poetic, metaphorical, deep meaning worldwide as a universal kind of symbol, that's right. Day I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find. And here you have a little girl in trouble. And when you're in trouble, all of us. I mean, I think this is universal because kids are oppressed by tyrannical parents. I don't care what kind of parents they are. They're bigger and they push them around, you know. And in this case, Miss Gulch was going to take Dorothy's dog away from her. So the first thing that comes into mind when you're that angry is, I want to get out of here. Where can I run to? So when they got together and they said, okay, we need a song for Dorothy, and it's got to be a song of yearning, yearning to get out of there, see? If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I The Wizard of Oz has probably been seen by more people than any other movie, including one 10-year-old boy in India who went to see The Wizard of Oz at the Metro Cinema in Bombay in the 1950s. Soon afterward, he wrote his first story called Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Salman Rushdie went on to write novels, including Midnight's Children and the Satanic Verses. He says the movie was his very first literary influence. 
And Rushdie has written a wonderful little book about The Wizard of Oz. Let's listen to him reading some of it to an audience in Vancouver. Anyone who has swallowed the scriptwriter's notion that this is a film about the superiority of home over away, that the moral of The Wizard of Oz is as sickly sweet as an embroidered sampler, east-west home's best, there's no place like home, would do well to listen to the yearning in Judy Garland's voice as her face tilts upward towards the skies. What she expresses here, what she embodies with the purity of an archetype is the human dream of leaving, a dream at least as powerful as its countervailing dream of roots. At the heart of The Wizard of Oz is the tension between these two dreams. But as the music swells and that big clean voice flies into the anguished longings of the song, can anyone doubt which message is the stronger? In its most potent emotional moment, this is unarguably a film about the joys of going away of leaving the grayness and entering the color, of making a new life in the place where there isn't any trouble. Over the Rainbow is, or ought to be, the anthem of all the world's migrants, all those who go in search of the place where the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. It is a celebration of escape, a grand paean to the uprooted self, a hymn, the hymn, to elsewhere. I think the place you were born and raised always feels like home in a way, you know? And, and for me, I go to Bombay and I have that feeling of going home. You know, I, I do. But it's not a home I particularly want to live in anymore, in the same way as you want to move out of your parents' house at some point, you know? Um, in the end, the home that matters is the one you make, you know? And, and, and that's what becomes the most important feeling of home, and I have that like anyone else. You know, and that's why I take such issue with this idea in the film that the, the there's no place like home idea, which is that return is the point. You know, return isn't the point. Going forward is the point. Who would go to Kansas when you could live in Oz? Um, <laughs> you know, sorry, Kansas. But in fact, in the books, in the, in the Oz books, uh, Frank Baum quite rapidly came to the same conclusion. And in the third or fourth book, I forget, actually Dorothy takes Aunt Em and Uncle Henry to Oz, and they all settle down there. You know, so, so the discovered world, the invented home, you know, becomes home. And, and I think that's more truthful about our relationship with the idea of home than just that you always have to go back to where you started. But anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And, oh, Annie M., there's no place like home. That was an excerpt of Studio 360's American Icon, The Wizard of Oz, produced by Ave Carrillo, Jonathan Mitchell, and Eric Malinsky. Come on, buddy, let's go. 
So every night before bedtime, my husband or I, one of us, always reads to our son. We ask him, uh, okay, pick out your books. And then there's this negotiation as to how many books we get to read that night. Okay. Scooby, Scooby. Which one first? Scooby. Sometimes he will have us read the same book every night. That's Daffy. I don't know. Let's find out. You know, like we always come back to this space and we always read books and. This same bedtime routine is part of like his world being in order, and so he finds a lot of comfort in that. The mystery machine bumped along a dark, empty road. Scooby-Doo and his friends bumped along, too. The ritual of choosing bedtime stories can only be parent-led for so long. It doesn't take any time before toddlers have very strong opinions about what they want to hear and see. And when that happens, I place my money on Goodnight Moon being the last book of the night. It's only fitting, then, that we end our show the way so many children end their day. With a little something, this one by Kelly Libby, having to do with Margaret Weiss Brown and her iconic story. I'm two little kittens and a pair of mittens. And a little toy house. And a little toy house. And a young mouse. And a young mouse. Does this sound familiar? And a brush and a bowl full of mush. And and a a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush. Of the 100 or so picture books written by Margaret Wise Brown, Goodnight Moon is the one little readers like Augie Field and his parents are probably most familiar with. And a quiet old lady that was whispering hush. If you've never seen a picture of Margaret Wise Brown, you could easily imagine her as that old lady whispering hush. But at the prime of her career, she was actually very childlike. She often indulged her inner child, publishing books like The Little Fur Family, which was tiny and bound in fur. Real fur. She thought that a book that was covered in real fur would have a kind of sensuous quality to it that children would find irresistible. And they did. Leonard Marcus, who wrote a biography of Brown, said parents sent letters of praise to the publisher. There were very funny stories about uh, one little boy who tried to feed um, the book his supper. You know, like open the book as if it was opening a mouth and put the food inside, you know, because it looked almost like a little mouse or a little something. And another girl took the book to bed with her along with her cat. So... And she thought the book would be good company for her cat. That books could be cuddled was a new idea. Brown just seemed to get children. When children are about two, they have what psychologists call animistic thinking, which is that they don't really understand the difference between what's alive and what's not alive, and they think everything is alive. And while Brown probably understood that instinctively, her first job out of college reinforced it. She worked as a nursery school teacher in New York City at an experimental school for young children called Bank Street. She was mentored there by a progressive educator named Lucy Mitchell, who thought books for young children should be based in the here and now rather than fantasy. And she was saying that while the librarians were reading fairy tales to young children, children really want books about the real world that they know, the world of cities, for example. And so Brown began writing books children could relate to, like The Noisy Book, The Little Fireman, 
and the color kittens. The color kittens is all about two kittens who are painters and they have every color but green. And so they try to make green. This is Amanda Cockrell, who directs the children's literature program at Hollins University. She's pointing out the lyrical language of the color kittens. Uh, they mixed red and blue together, and what did that make? It didn't make green. It made a deep, dark purple. Purple is violets. Purple is plums. Purple is shadows on late afternoons. But Cockrell says the best children's book writers have something else. The ability to go back and be a child, to write for that child and not down to that child. You've got to be able to remember what it was like to be five. Um, she was very much about emotional honesty for children. And yet she wasn't fond of children. Like she once said in Life magazine, uh, that she didn't particularly like children. And then she, you know, added, um, at least not as a group. Publishers and critics were appalled. But Brown was aware of a stereotype about children's book authors, that they were cute people who adored children. She wanted to break that stereotype. And for that same article, she posed, you know, in bed, you know, with, with, a, with a feather pen. I mean, she looked like, like a Hollywood movie star who was also possibly a little bit kooky. She broke the stereotype in another way, too. While she authored books like The Runaway Bunny, she was also a rabbit hunter. She was not a very sentimental person. And we often think of bunnies in the context of children's books as representing cuteness and fluffiness. But Margaret Weiss Brown was always aware of the fact that rabbits are, um, because they're small, they're vulnerable. And because they're small, they have to be quick-witted, like Br'er Rabbit. Uh, the rabbit is trickster. The rabbit who, if he isn't fast enough, you know, will end up in somebody's pie, as happens in Peter Rabbit, uh, Beatrix Potter's book. So rabbits became symbolic for her of her understanding of childhood, not only the happy parts, but also the darker or more challenging parts. Brown died unexpectedly at the age of 42 while traveling in France. Years earlier, though, she came up with an imaginative way to stretch time. She would go down south in this big fancy car that she bought for herself with all her royalties after World War II when her books were really taking off. And she would go sometime in the month of March when spring was just starting to happen in the south. And then she would slowly drive north and she would watch the spring start again and again as she moved um, farther north and heading toward her summer house in Maine. So that was very typical of how she rearranged reality to suit herself. Um, you know, most of us only get one spring each year, but she found a way of having uh, many of them. Good night, room. Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, moon. Brown's picture books remain popular today with both night, children cow. and adults. Helping over the moon. Good night, light and the red balloon. Good night, light and red balloon. Good night, bears. The, Good night, chairs. Good night, bear. Good night, chairs. That was A Good Night Moon Story by Kelly Libby for the show With Good Reason. Still cries about his parents. Oh, bless him, I never knew. Harry had had enough, trusting to the fact that Hagrid 
wouldn't miss him with the attractions of Fool Dragons and Madame Maxime. I've read Harry Potter to all of my kids, out loud, doing voices as we go along. You there, Harry? Got summer to show you, said Hagrid. So my daughter is nine, and she's the last one uh, that I've read the series to. So this time I'm reading a little bit slower because I want to enjoy it. I've, I've kind of savored each book knowing that it's, it's the last time I'm going to read it out loud, at least until I have grandkids. As we've read them through, the books uh, come alive when you read them out loud together. You're experiencing the richness of the story. After a minute or so, Cockcroft seemed to decide that he had hit some sort of an animal. I hope that she's still reading to her kids someday. Um, I hope that we haven't eclipsed this idea of reading out loud together before bed. All right, that's enough for tonight. There's your book. All right, sweets, love you. Sleep good. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.